Coming up, it's Philosophy Talk. The failure of the country to get behind New York City is, is anti-Semitism. Max, the city is terribly run. But, but I'm not discussing politics or economics. This is foreskin. Where did anti-Semitism come from? Is it racism? Religious bigotry? Economic anxiety? I know that people want a scapegoat. Why do they have to pick on the Jews? A lot of the association between Jews and international finance have to do with their presumed lack of loyalty. Our guest is Francesca Trivellato from the Institute for Advanced Study. When we study anti-Semitism, we see that there isn't really an arc from a religious to a political or a pseudo-racial form. Uh, it's more a piling on of uh, different elements. The changing face of anti-Semitism. I may hate myself, but not because I'm Jewish. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Thank you for downloading this episode of Philosophy Talk. Did you know that we've got a library of more than 500 other episodes over at our website? Yeah, philosophytalk.org. We question everything. Except your intelligence. From Aristotle to Zeno, from anarchy to Zen. Become a subscriber today at philosophytalk.org. And now, on with the show. Where did anti-Semitism come from? Is it racism, religious bigotry, or something else? And what can history teach us about what's going on today? This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs. And I'm Josh Landy. Today we're coming to you from the Stanford Humanities Center. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where I teach philosophy, and Josh directs the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. We're very grateful to the Stanford Humanities Center for generously sponsoring tonight's conversation, and we're pretty excited to be back with a live audience after two and a half years. So welcome everyone to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about the changing face of anti-Semitism. You know, Ray, anti-Semitism is a, a big a problem these days, and I don't see it getting any better. I mean, you've got both the FBI and the Anti-Defamation League reporting massive increases in incidents over the past several years. Yeah, and not only that, but anti-Semitism is a really old problem. You know, back in the Middle Ages, Jews were getting banished from their home countries and getting massacred because people blamed them for the plague. Yeah, and don't forget the forced conversions to Christianity, the murders in the Inquisition. It's been not entirely great for us Jews for quite a long time. <laughs> yeah, and the, the strange thing is, is that it's hard to even talk about the problem without people assuming that you're trying to diminish other people's suffering or that you're trying to advocate for some controversial policy. Yeah, well, the only thing I'm trying to advocate for is people being nice to each other. Ah, oh, amen to that. So Josh, where do you think all this intolerance comes from? Well, I, I mean, I've got to think that at least part of it comes from scapegoating. I mean, you mentioned, you know, the situation with the, the bubonic plague all those years ago. There was a similar weird conspiracy theory about COVID recently. Bad stuff happens in the world. People want someone to blame for it. So, you know, they pick on us Jews. Okay, I, I get that people want somebody to blame when bad stuff happens, but why blame the Jews specifically? Well, you know, we, we eat different foods, we celebrate holidays at different times, maybe we dress a little differently. That makes it easier for the surrounding population to separate us out, identify us, and, you know, point the finger at us when it's convenient. 
I don't know. Like Jews don't always eat different foods or dress differently from everybody else. A lot of us just eat Big Macs and wear jeans. That doesn't protect us from prejudice. Why not? Well, maybe, you know, wearing jeans and eating Big Macs isn't enough for some people. Right? Look, I'm not talking about everybody. I know plenty of extremely egalitarian Christians. Yeah, yeah. Some of my best friends are Christian. <laughs> but there are clearly some Christians who, you know, would rather prefer that Jews went to church on Sunday and believe the things that they believe. And, you know, if we don't do that, maybe that marks us off a little bit as suspect. Yeah, no, and there is that sort of long-standing strand in Christian theology that blames Jews for the death of Christ. Absolutely. I mean, you know, think back to the medieval period when, when huge numbers of Jews were being forced to convert to Christianity. In some cases, it was either convert or die, you know. So, well, maybe the problem's really that base about religious intolerance. I don't know if it can all be religious intolerance. Like, think about Germany in the 30s and 40s. You could convert to Christianity all you wanted, but that still wouldn't protect you in the slightest. So I don't think it can just be that. Okay, so what is it all about? Well, honestly, I, I think it's racism. So look, being Jewish is something that you inherit. It's something that's associated with stereotypes about your physical appearance. And a lot of people think it's not a thing that you can change just by converting or assimilating. You know, this, this kind of essentialist thinking is behind some of the greatest atrocities of the 20th century. I think that's true for the 20th century, and it may be true still today, but, I mean, just how far back does that go? I feel like, you know, if you, you look to older stereotypes, they tend to be less about race and more about money, right? So think about Shylock in The Merchant of Venice, right? He's depicted as a heartless, grasping moneylender out for his literal pound of flesh, that's arguably an anti-Semitic depiction, but it's not about race. I mean, isn't that more about people taking their economic anxieties and then projecting them onto the Jews? Well, yeah, people do project their economic anxieties, but that still doesn't explain why they project them onto the Jews and not onto somebody else. And I think the only thing that can possibly explain it is racism. I don't get it, Ray. I mean, how can it be about racism when Jewishness isn't a race? Like, there's Jews from all over the world. There's Jews from Eastern Europe, Syria, China, Ethiopia, plus you can convert to Judaism. I, I don't understand how it could possibly be thought of as a race. Yeah, but none of that really matters. So it doesn't matter that Jews aren't all from the same place, don't all look alike. It doesn't even matter whether race is a real thing at all. I think what matters is that Jews are perceived as a race and that that's where anti-Semitism comes from. I don't know, though. I mean, you know, in the grand sweep of human history, talk about race is a relatively recent phenomenon, whereas, as we were both saying earlier, anti-Semitism, that's age old, right? I mean, surely a lot of it goes back to the kinds of jobs that Jews were forced to take up in the Middle Ages. They were often siloed off into financial professions, which led to a number of people associating Jews with money, which had all the downstream consequences that we know about. Yeah, but a whole lot of non-Jews also worked in finance, so why not blame them? Well, some of them got blamed too, but, but you're right. I think Jews have borne the brunt of it. Uh, six million of us were murdered in the Holocaust, including some of my own relatives. Yeah, some of mine too. So it's affected you directly, it's affected me directly, and so many others. It continues to affect us today. I think we need to dig deep into the historical roots of these pernicious myths about Jews and Jewishness. How did we end up in the situation we're in today? Well, fortunately, we're going to be joined soon by historian Francesca Trivolato. She's the author of a book about the emergence of finance capitalism and how that interacted with anti-Semitism. But first, we're going to think about anti-Semitism today. Many Jewish leaders and educators blame the problem partly on a lack of basic knowledge about the Holocaust 
and about modern-day anti-Semitism. So we've sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to talk to some people who want to change that. She files this report. When Michaela Pelta was in high school in San Francisco, she served as a Jewish student union rep for the West Coast. I have just seen that if I'm not going to do it, no one else is going to do it. Her great-grandmother on one side and grandfather on the other are both Holocaust survivors. I was so quiet about my Jewish identity for so many years of my life. In the summer of 2020, she began hearing from Jewish students that they were seeing anti-Semitic posts on social media. For example, comparing Jews to apes. And it made us think that, you know, anti-Semitism didn't just form within a month or two. Um, A lot of our peers were harboring these views and kind of waited until they wouldn't be confronted by us in the hallways or have to, you know, face a Jewish student the next day to then express that. A lot of ideas that were so sedimented into the foundations of our culture that they just return and return and return. David Livingston Smith is a professor of philosophy at the University of New England. He says education around anti-Semitism isn't adequate, and there also isn't nearly enough education around anti-Black racism or the genocide of Indigenous people. You have to understand the ideological and political and social influences that are ginning people up to think of other people as less than human. Livingston Smith is the author of Making Monsters, The Uncanny Power of Dehumanization. We spoke soon after a white supremacist murdered 10 people at a supermarket in Buffalo. The suspect said he chose Buffalo because it was the city with the highest number of black people nearby. The suspect was also inspired by what's known as the Great Replacement Theory. Great Replacement Theory is an idea which is current in white supremacist circles, has been promoted on Fox, by Tucker Carlson, that there's a kind of plot to replace white people with people of color. And guess who's the mastermind behind that plot? Jewish people. Education is important for helping students recognize anti-Semitism so that they can call it out. Hashim Davis is a high school teacher in Virginia. He says people ask him a lot about why, as an African-American man, he's so focused on teaching about the Holocaust. It's really about an examination of of humanity or man's lack of humanity. What will happen in in these moments? Davis grew up in New York and remembers trips to the city's five and dime store. The owner was a curmudgeon, mean as heck. But years later, after visiting the Virginia Holocaust Museum as an undergrad, he thought again to that man and one particular trip to his store. We go to the store and I want to buy this particular action figure. And he had short sleeve shirt on, you know, the, the button collar, but it was, it was short sleeve. And I noticed that he had some writing on his, his arm. Well, it took me years to realize, oh, he was a survivor. So I, I just thought it was a a moment of serendipity that I would find myself coming back to it. Now Davis has dedicated his professional and academic life to studying and teaching about the Holocaust. His students meet with survivors, and he tells his students about how the Nazis were influenced by Jim Crow laws in America. And he says they're godsmacked. The history of the Holocaust is bleak, but important. Everyone always says, oh no, if it were me, I would have done this. I would have done that. I would have helped them. Yeah, that sounds cool. 
But the statistics would say that that didn't happen. In fact, more people turned away and more people didn't do anything than, than the opposite. As a Holocaust educator, Davis wants students to expand their definition of what anti-Semitism is, to understand it's a hatred connected to other hatreds. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly Jimteed. Thanks for that terrific report, Holly. I'm Josh Landy, along with my Stanford colleague, Ray Briggs, and we're here with a live audience at the Stanford Humanities Center, which has generously sponsored tonight's conversation. Our guest today is a historian at the Institute for Advanced Study and the author of The Promise and Peril of Credit, What a Forgotten Legend About Jews and Finance Teaches Us About the Makings of European Commercial Society. Please welcome to the Philosophy Talk stage, Francesca Trivolato. So Francesca, you're a historian of early modern Europe. What first got you interested in the history of anti-Semitism? So I got to the topic as a historian of European economy and trade before modern capitalism when uh, trade, European trade expanded and that brought people from more diverse background together on various marketplaces all over Europe, the Mediterranean and uh, the world. And yet um, the ideas and stereotypes that merchants had of one another did not necessarily produce a more embracing, tolerant ideology. So you've written a lot about uh, how financial developments in the period that you study sort of changed uh, how people perceived Jews and how anti-Semitism worked. Can you say what some of those financial developments were? Yeah, you all have uh, heard of the Industrial Revolution in uh, England around 1800. But before that, there was the medieval Commercial Revolution which did not involve technological change very much, as much as changes in the organization of trade and banking, and particularly uh, a number of instruments, the credit instruments emerged that helped merchants uh, uh, trade across long distances. Uh, one of the innovations of the 13th, 14th century is modern insurance, what we have today. Another, um, is something called bills of exchange, which no longer exist today. They were, uh, in terms of material, like paper, slips of paper, smaller than a modern uh, a check today, and they were used to transfer money from one location to another, and they had the beauty of simultaneously uh, uh, being a credit instrument, but also involving a currency transaction, so you can you know, transfer dollars from the US to, uh, uh, euros in Europe with just one slip of paper. Okay, so that sounds like a great thing, right? Now, you don't have to take a huge sack of gold coins on your ship. It might get you know, raided by pirates or sink or something. You just have your exactly. bill of exchange. What's not to like? So there were a lot of things to like it uh, about this instrument. At the same time, uh, particularly during the 16th century, these bills became very complex, very arcane, somewhat like today's of some of the financial instruments that... Uh, uh, you know, are necessary for our private pensions, but also we don't really know how to control them. So bills of exchange uh, became instruments of uh, financial speculation. Uh, there were a few small groups of bankers who bought and sold these pieces of paper and made money on the currency exchanges without really 
exchanging any goods. And that became suspicious or cane, something that regular people didn't quite understand how it happened. And that brought up the association between bills of exchange and Jews. This is Philosophy Talk, coming to you from the Stanford Humanities Center. Our guest is historian Francesca Trivellato. Why were early modern Europeans so anxious about money lending? What caused them to project their anxiety onto the Jews? And how did some anti-Semitic stereotypes in general get started? Money, myth, and malice, along with questions from our live studio audience when Philosophy Talk continues. Thanks to our musical guests, the Kolomaika Trio, and thanks also to the Stanford Humanities Center for sponsoring today's episode. This is Philosophy Talk. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. Our guest is Francesca Trivellato from the Institute for Advanced Study, and we're thinking about the changing face of anti-Semitism. Do you have a question or comment about how history shaped anti-Semitism? Do you have thoughts about the relationship between anti-Semitism and the emergence of capitalism? Join the conversation by raising your hand. In a moment, we'll bring the mic around to you. So Francesca, earlier we were talking about some of the new financial developments in early modern Europe. Uh, can you tell us more about how these relate to anti-Semitism? Good question. Um, in the earlier segments, you and Josh, I think we're pointing to the fact that anti-Semitism, as all forms of prejudice, uh, persists over time and yet changes. And Christians had a lot of prejudicial views of the relationship between Jews and money. But they all boil down this prejudice to the notion that Jews were particularly good at money, and yet, instead of using their talents for the common good, for the benefit of everyone, they did it to enrich themselves. And that's where the uh, connection between uh, all the money economy and Jews and anti-Semitism lies. And so these new financial instruments, right? I, I mean, I take it that part of the issue is that I, well, first of all, I guess they're new, and so they're hard for people to you know, get to terms with, and maybe they're a little opaque, right? They're hard to understand, they're hard to track, and so does it maybe seem uh, to members of the population that it's something that unscrupulous agents could manipulate for their own benefit? And so if you have some kind of you know, uh, other in the population that is going to be considered as lesser, well, you're going to say, oh, better make sure we get that instrument out of the hands of those folks, otherwise they're going to use it unscrupulously to their own ends. That's exactly right. Uh, the idea that was born uh, somewhere uh, around the middle of the 17th century, the Jews had invented these bills of exchange, which is absolutely not true, uh, was not advocated by those who wanted to eliminate finance from the everyday life of which there were plenty, you know. But it was more uh, brought about by those who wanted to try to find a kind of a healthy capitalism and weed out the potentially nefarious aspects. And so the idea that these uh, instruments might have been tainted by a Jewish origin 
could always be resurrected um, you know, in, in certain moments of crisis. I'm kind of like still puzzled because it seems like a lot of these financial is instruments have descendants that exist today and sort of lots of Christians used them and lots of Christians used them when they were being developed and some even used them to cheat each other. And yet somehow it's, it's the Jews who were sort of, I guess, blamed for inventing these new ways to cheat each other. They were uh, blamed in case things went wrong. Hmm. Right? That's the cleverness of Christian anti-Semitism relating to these financial instruments. There was not an outright uh, position to say all forms of finance. That's a sort of an old view of the Catholic Church as opposed to all forms of profit uh, and entrepreneurship. It's a very Protestant uh, uh, idea. And that um, scholars have amply debunked that idea. In fact, the Catholic Church try to create a, a sort of a good spiritual Christian economy. And since that's very difficult to define what it is, it was defined in antagonism as the opposite of what Jews do. Yeah, um, I mean, that makes a certain kind of, you know, sense within a certain kind of dangerous logic, right? I was sort of wondering, you know, based on some of the things you've written, um, like, why is it so easy to pin the bad workings of this financial, uh, this new financial system on Jews. I mean, does it have partly to do with existing stereotypes? I'm thinking of a couple uh, in particular that you've talked about. You know, one is this sense, you know, uh, in the wake of Jews converting, um, the sense that, well, you know, Jews are duplicitous. They say they're Christians, but really in their hearts they're still Jewish, so we can't trust them, right? So that could be one pre-existing stereotype that could feed into this. And another might be something like separateness, right? That, well, this is a, a community within a community. They have their own customs, their own practices, their own laws. Um, can we trust them to be working for the greater good? And that sounds like potentially reasons, how, you know, how you could sell that bit of propaganda, right? That, the, you know, yeah, this is a great economic system. It's just, you know, some terrible people who are responsible for any ways in which it goes wrong. Are those two factors involved at all? Yeah, and the two factors go together. They are the two sides of the same coin. Um, you know, you're, many of you will be familiar with the, the modern uh, anti-Semitic stereotype of Jews who are disloyal to the nation and only loyal to their own uh, uh, group, and that the, you know, the myth of Jews controlling finance is a version of that. Well, that is a modern version of a previous a stereotype associated with conversion, and they're both associated, this is kind of the paradox, with the idea that Jews are invisible. And the very Christian institutions, particularly Catholic institutions, who were adamant about converting Jews, sometimes against their will, they were also those who suspected Jews who actually converted the most. <laughs> So the Inquisition wanted to baptize Jews, but once Jews had been baptized, the Inquisition did not believe that Jews were good Christians. That fear of the invisible Jews migrates into the modern period when Jews are given citizenship, which is a form of baptism in the modern period. Is a way, you know, baptism in theory makes all Christians the same, and citizenship in theory makes all of us the same. But once Jews become citizens, 
They're not trusted to be loyal citizens. Uh, a lot of the association between Jews and international finance have to do with their religious and political presumed lack of loyalty. This seems like kind of a, a weird kind of double bind to put people in because like how much, so some of this is just like clearly just made up and nonsense. Yeah. And some of it is like, I think if the state tried to kill me and forced me to convert to a different religion, I might not be so loyal to the After state. All. <laughs> <laughs> like if, if the state, you know, forced me to practice a different religion against my will, I might not feel like, like I, I might still sort of feel some loyalty to, to what I had been forced out of. How, how do you sort of separate those two strands of like stuff that just is made up versus stuff that is like true but not blameworthy and is being made true by oppression? Yeah, that's a very good question. And uh, I think it's important to think about, you know, individual variations. I mean, even when Jews are forced to convert as a collective, um, it's very hard for historians to find out what their deepest belief were, especially, you know, after generations, because after generation you've been brought up as a Christian. Uh, but there were some Jews who became apparently, you know, good Christian believers uh, after some generation particularly, and others that, as you said, did continue in secrecy, uh, you know, to light candles on Friday night or to change their shirts on Friday night. Their notion of Judaism became more and more watered down. <laughs> uh, that's a, a, another story. But the way in which they were persecuted for something that was, you know, their, their intimate life is something difficult for us modern to understand. There was no differences between the private religion and public religion in the past. But there was a lot of individual variation. It's not that there was a Jewish convert behavior as a collective. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're at the Stanford Humanities Center in front of a live audience, and we have a question from our audience. Uh, what's your name, and what's your question or comment? The name is Larry. First, in terms of the bills of exchange, I'm just curious how that wound up spreading through Europe, and did it also wind up spreading into the Middle East, the more Arabic countries? And were there facets of the Jewish community that became maybe a little more immune to uh, this broad painting brush that, you know, oh, you're a Jew, you know, so you're working for your own interest instead of, you know, being above board. And how did this mesh, if at all, with, say, Arabic countries where, you know, the idea of credit, you know, that, that was not really accepted? So let me start from your last point. Um, Religious injunction against usury existed both in uh, Muslims and in Christian countries. And in both regions, countries as they were, in both regions there were ways uh, of um, bypassing those restrictions. Uh, in fact, Islam is a religion very much favorable to trade in its origin. Uh, it's it's uh, amply demonstrated now. Bills of exchange uh, uh, existed in different forms. There were some unique features to Europe, in part because of unique features of European politics and economy. Um, the Muslim world had a much greater monetary unity than Europe. So there were uh, instruments, they were called suftaja, that were used to transfer money, but they were more like a money order. There was no currency exchange because over very vast 
uh, regions, the same currency was uh, uh, in use. Instead, in Europe, there were so many currencies, even in the same city. And so bills of exchange, which, you know, some may think were like some special features of capitalistic uh, uh, mentality, they were just a solution to a problem that did not exist elsewhere. Um, and, and I think that's very important as we begin to compare uh, multiple forms of capitalism that uh, exist across the world. First of all, there can be different you know, solutions to the same problem sometimes, but also some society did not have the same problems. Um, so you know, it's often said, oh, China didn't have a public debt, so they were financially less uh, uh, advanced. Well, the Chinese empire was excellent at raising enormous taxes from agriculture. So they didn't need a public debt. So it's very important that certain kind, that, you know, dislodge a certain kind of ideas that there is one superior European form of capitalism. Um, it certainly had mobilized extraordinary economic power. But a lot of times the instruments that are peculiar to Europe emerge because the problems they were trying to solve were uh, very peculiar, and the, and the monetary differences across Europe and within small regions were really astounding. So we have another question or comment from the audience. Uh, my name is Shahnawaz Karim. Uh, so my comment is, major part of human history is one tribe committing atrocities on a different tribe, be it the Holocaust, the Rwandan genocide, or the, the racism that you were talking about. So. How do you think about anti-Semitism in such a broader context? Thanks. Well, this is a very difficult but very good question. And I think that the opening segment uh, made one very important uh, uh, point very clear, that often various forms of racism, they go hand in hand. Uh, it is difficult to find uh, a, a racialized uh, a mentality, a racist mentality that only targets one group. Um, so anti-Semitism has some peculiarities because Jews were, in the history of Europe until the 19th century, really the only non-Christian minority that was allowed to worship in Europe. There were small pockets in medieval Liberia and in some parts of Poland where there were some uh, Muslims who were uh, living next door to Jews and Christians, but that was uh, an exception. And because of Christian theology, because of, as was said before, the idea that Jews were the original killers of Christ, uh, that idea has enormous ramifications. But you cannot study or understand anti-Semitism apart from other forms of racialized exclusions, uh, because they sadly go hand in hand. So we have more questions from the audience. What's your name uh, and what's your comment? My name question? is David. Uh, you've characterized Jews as different but not necessarily advantaged vis-a-vis -vis Gentiles in, in, uh, with respect to commerce. But Jews actually brought a number of advantages uh, beyond individual advantages but as group advantages, uh, such as having a common language, at least, in Europe, uh, uh, Yiddish, and in Spanish countries, Ladino and Talmudic uh, argumentation and background literacy, fundamental literacy, uh, gave Jews a as a group distinct advantages. Were those the basis of anti-Semitism as well, not just the separation of Jews or the religious differences? 
Well, there were many uh, segments of the Jewish diaspora. In fact, it's very difficult to speak of Jews as a unity. Um, but for example, the Jews who were expelled from Spain and Portugal, um, after a couple of generations, they didn't know Ladino. They didn't know any Hebrew. Uh, they knew Spanish and or Portuguese. And once they emigrated to the very few uh, port cities uh, uh, in Western Europe where they could live and where they were welcome because of their uh, trading connections, as you said. They learned the local languages. They became very um, apt at sort of being part of all the, there wasn't a separate Jewish mercantile culture. Um, you know, for example, I've looked for books about trade authored by Jews, and they repeat the same things as the other author by Christian uh, how-to manuals uh, for merchants. Um, I uh, studied a company uh, that was formed by two um, Sephardic Jewish families, and they write in uh, excellent uh, Portuguese and Italian, and at some point they start doing business, which is what led them to bankruptcy, with a uh, Persian Jew, and they have to hire a translator to communicate with that person. So um, there is a, a, a reality about uh, the intra-Jewish networks, in part because, as we were saying earlier, religion is not a private matter. So for example, Jews could only marry Jews as the same way in which Protestants could only marry Protestants and Catholics could only marry pro uh, Catholics because marriage was not a civil uh, ceremony. But uh, Jews who were involved in trade uh, were uh, really absorbed uh, the local majority culture um, so that part of the separateness was projected onto them as a fantasy. There was some reality to it, but the magnitude of uh, that uh, separateness was largely imagined by those who perceived them as competition, as unfair competition, as a special people, and so forth. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're talking about the changing face of anti-Semitism with Francesca Trivellato from the Institute for Advanced Study. What can history teach us about anti-Semitism today? How can we avoid repeating the mistakes of the past? Can understanding our dark history light the way toward a brighter future? We'll take more questions from our live audience when Philosophy Talk continues. Thanks again to our musical guests, Kalamaika Trio, and special thanks to our hosts, the Stanford Humanities Center, for sponsoring today's episode. I'm Josh Landy, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs, and we're thinking today about the changing face of anti-Semitism with historian Francesca Trivellato. So Francesca, what can history tell us about how to confront anti-Semitism today? Well, it's a billion dollar question, <laughs> and I think it's also a particularly bleak moment. So I only have rather bleak things to think about. Uh, some of you may remember 
something that used to be called the Grand Arches Theory of Conflict Prevention, uh, which was heralded by New York Times journalist Thomas Friedman in 1999. And it posited that two countries that had a McDonald's had never gone to war <laughs> to, with one another. Uh, the book yes. came out as NATO was bombing Belgrade. Um, and sadly, um, you know, I don't need to remind anyone of two countries with McDonald's who are at war in the midst of Europe right now. So I think the most uh, um, what I take away from what I study is that we certainly cannot delegate to the idea that economic cooperation would necessarily breed uh, some uh, everything that we cannot produce ourselves through, as you said in, earlier in the program, education, knowledge, and questioning ourselves. Right. Um, we are not going to combat any form of prejudice and stereotypes uh, through the uh, spread of capitalism. That's, the solution <laughs> will be a little too simple. Right, but I'm wondering whether, okay, so not through the spread of capitalism, but I'm wondering whether, you know, I mean, we're at the university, maybe some education. I was thinking in particular about the sort of the many layers of anti-Semitism, the, the things that you talk about, right? That, you know, there's this sort of pre-Christian layer that's something like cultural anti-Semitism, and then there's the religious anti-Semitism, and then there's economic anti-Semitism and scapegoating and blood libel, and then later on, sort of 19th century, you get racial anti-Semitism and nationalist anti-Semitism, which you were talking about a moment ago, the Dreyfus Affair and things like that. And I wonder if, you know, understanding all that history can help people at least be quicker to identify anti-Semitism, especially in its more subtle forms. Like sometimes we see things like, you know, well, QAnon had that weird thing about Hillary Clinton drinking baby's blood or whatever it was they said. And maybe, you know, do you think if, if, if we are better at getting the word out about the history of anti-Semitism, all of its various layers, that can at least do some good. Absolutely. Um, you know, as you, as you were saying, these uh, different facets of these stereotypes, they tend to pile on. You cannot, you know, surgically uh, separate uh, one from the other. So one thing is when we study anti-Semitism, we see that there isn't really an arc from a religious to a political or a pseudo-racial form. Uh, it's more a piling on of uh, different elements. And, and the other thing is I, I do think today um, we also need to study anti-Semitism in comparisons. Uh, in Europe, more than in the United States, there is a perception that there's like a rivalry between Islamophobia and anti-Semitism, uh, which I think it is, uh, first of all, a terrible rivalry <laughs> if, if it were true, but it's not even true. Um, as I was uh, noting before, um, these uh, uh, prejudices tend to be held by the same groups, the same individuals, and tend to also those prejudices tend to pile on. Um, so I think it, there is no distinction between studying the specific aspects that have historically formed anti-Semitism and comparing them with other prejudice, because the two things, in fact, go together. So we have another question or comment from the audience. Can you tell us your name and your question or comment, please? Okay, uh, my name is Stuart, and I'd like anti-Semitism to end. So I'm looking towards solutions, and 
And having two McDonald's doesn't seem to work. Education doesn't seem to work very well, all right? So I'd like to think outside the box and say, you know, maybe not now, but 100 years from now, we can look back and say, oh yeah, we had this evil thing and now it's gone. So uh, can you think of something outrageous, something outside the box that would 100 years from now end anti-Semitism? But I, I have one solution, and you can think of others, and that is that we're simply too small. That if, if Hitler would have had to contend with 200 million of us, he wouldn't have thought of eliminating us, right? So we end uh, not proselytizing, but we try to grow out of it. And in 100 years, there are maybe 75 million of us, maybe even 100 million of us, and our tribe is too big to criticize anymore. <laughs> so if you have any other ideas, I'm welcome, I'd welcome to hear them. Because I'd just like to you've been holding back the solution to anti-Semitism. <laughs> <laughs> this is the solution. <laughs> but then, you know, when you become a, a majority, usually majorities tend to find their own minorities. Mm. Um, I'm not going to go further than that, <laughs> but it is a, it's a complicated relationship um, between uh, people who perceives uh, minority groups as uh, a threat even when, uh, you know, precisely their minority status renders them particularly weak. Um, it's, it's a very painful uh, paradox. Looks like we have another question or comment from the audience. Can you tell us your name and your question or comment, please? Yes, my name is Ken Laurel. Um, I, my grandparents came here 100 years ago as, as little children, and they went through the whole gamut of anti-Semitism through the turn of the century, the 1920s, 30s, 40s, that our family has pictures of, you know, no dogs or Jews allowed in community gatherings and so forth. But today, we have uh, Joe Biden, who's a Catholic. We have Bernie Sanders, who's a Jew. Mitt Romney, who's a Mormon, all of whom are national-level politicians. And I really never heard their religion uh, discussed in any seriously negative way. And no one see. I mean, they tease Bernie Sanders about being Bernie Sanders, but they don't, there's no discussion about him being a Jew. So, it, at least in my mind, there has been a huge amount of progress from the time that my grandparents came here in the 1890s to the present. And maybe Francesca has a, some comments about I that. I think isn't that interesting, because, you know, I mean, on the one hand, it's clear that some progress has been made, and you could think class half full. On the other hand, as we were saying earlier, you know, there's an increase in anti-Semitic incidents. It's something like 60% of all religiously motivated hate crimes are, are committed against Jews, and, and you've got this crazy great replacement theory that weaves together in this, uh, you know, this heady brew of uh, anti-Semitism and other forms of racism, and, and you've got you know, the previous president saying that George Soros is paying the caravans of immigrants to come to the country. So, you know, is it glass half full or half empty? Or is this a kind of a, a precipice moment where things could go very badly or actually sort of inching towards a better moment? Well, I, I think that um, these are just my view as a citizen uh, rather than as a scholar, but I think that we should always aim at the highest. Um, you know, I think it's absolutely true that... Uh, if nothing else, there are no more legal uh, forms of discriminations, at least in this country. But um, when certain kind of uh, stereotypes are 
pronounced by figures with a lot of perceived authority or real authority, if not power, they become very dangerous. And so I think, uh, and that's about George Soros, but you know, certainly about comments of the previous uh, uh, sitting president about the relationship between uh, Asian population and Asian Americans and, and COVID. So the, um, there is no real alternative to education in order to combat that, because you, you know, you're not gonna police free speech. Uh, um, although I think that there are, um, I mean, that's maybe my <laughs> European background, you know, that uh, uh, free speech uh, can uh, easily uh, be blurred in uh, to racial hatred and advocacy of racial hatred. Um, so I think that even if things have improved uh, tremendously, the fact that, uh, you know, structural um, discrimination and uh, profoundly misguided views about Jews and other minorities persist. Uh, it certainly should not, you know, is not reason for any comfort. Um, it is very, you know, good that we are not where we were in the 20s and 30s because that was as lethal um, as uh, Western uh, prejudice has been. Um, and even if we are not uh, living under fascism, it doesn't mean that we should be content with what we have. Yet. Um, well, on that semi-optimistic note, Francesca, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a really great pleasure. Our guest has been Francesca Trivellato from the Institute for Advanced Study and author of The Promise and Peril of Credit, What a Forgotten Legend About Jews and Finance Tells Us About the Making of European Commercial Society. And we'll put links to everything we've mentioned today on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a subscriber and gain access to our library of more than 500 episodes. And if you have a question that wasn't addressed today, we'd love to hear from you. Email it to us at comments at philosophytalk.org and we may feature it on our blog. And now, to end a serious conversation on a somewhat lighter note, it's Ian Scholes, the 62nd philosopher. Ian Scholes, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion surfaced in the West in 1906, and has been a great little anti-Semitic fundraiser ever since. Alleged to be the record of a top secret meeting of a Jewish world domination subcommittee, it was soon revealed to be the plagiarism of a previous hoax which had cited Freemasons, Knights Templar, and the Illuminati. The hidden hands of doom now changed to Jewish in the 20th century, this document caught fire. I got my copy online from the FBI through the Freedom of Information Act. There was other material attached in the PDF file, including a letter to J. Edgar Hooper from some shopkeeper in Michigan or whatever, who had been given the protocols by his son-in-law. Had the FBI heard of it? Well, yes we have, but Mr. Hoover sent him a nice letter of thanks anyway. The protocols themselves also contained a disclaimer, quote, the claim of the Jews that the protocols are forgeries is in itself an admission of their genuineness, unquote. Well, okay, fun. Let's imagine persons who believe this hoo-ha. Now, some people want reasons for their incipient anti-Semitism. These look to be fooled, yet these believe they are not easily fooled. So if they are fooled, it proves the truth of what they are reading. Ipso factoid. Also in this disclaimer, quote, according to the records of secret Jewish Zionism, already in 929 BC, learned Jewish men thought out a scheme for a peaceful conquest of the whole universe by Zion, unquote. So they were plotting against the Goyim before there even were any, and Zion was but a foolish dream. 
And all we have to show for this are these 24 lousy protocols, which are not action items from an agenda, no, just minutes from previous meetings, with statements that owe more to Machiavelli than the Old Testament, like, uh, quote, remember the French Revolution. It was wholly the work of our hands. Ever since that time, we have been leading the peoples from one disenchantment to another, unquote. So you did the French Revolution. Wow, how did you manage that? You need so many org meetings, ROI analysis, PowerPoint presentations, so many decisions. Do you storm the Bastille or just stroll past it? Do you develop your own guillotine or contract it out? There's a remarkable lack of detail in the protocols, just things to be credited without evidence like communism and premarital sex. All this has taken and maybe will take centuries. All the more reason to keep an eye on the bottom line. Protocol 22 informs us that they have most of the world's gold in storehouses. Further putting Goyim at their mercy, except hello, what about crypto? Somebody's not thinking ahead. Point being, there's no planning in these protocols, just bragging. Jews don't even believe in doomsday scenarios. Their Messiah is yet to come. So a Goyim second coming could conceivably coincide with a Jewish first coming. Two Messiahs in the same room, awkward. Just in time for the final battle, though, with Freemasons, Mormons, Catholics, Bolsheviks, fascists, angels, demons, and George Soros, indulging in all the eschatological revenge fantasies of the Western world at once. You can't have an event like that without an event planner. So it stands to reason that the alleged author of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion did not know what he was talking about. He wrote that Europe must be laid low by, quote, a spiritual demoralization and a moral corruption, chiefly with the assistance of Jewish women masquerading as French, Italians, etc. These are the surest spreaders of licentiousness into the lives of the leading men at the heads of nations, unquote. This is so Eurocentric, not like today. I was supposed to think that Jews thought that French and Italians were so licentious, Jewish women disguised of them could corrupt the West. Well, it might be just me, but this sounds like a premise for incredibly confusing pornography that requires a therapist to view. So I don't buy it. How could doomsday Jews even have known about the very first meeting? In 929 BC, apparently 300 attended, but was that really the number or just a, a quorum? It took a long time to get places back then. How about the ones that didn't make it? Were they bitter without, about decisions made without them? Protocols don't say. Think of they'd had Zoom back in the 10th century BC. Think of they had doodle poles and phone trees and Salesforce. Even now, with the discounted world domination travel plans firmly in place, you've got to factor in administrative costs. It's a word to the wise. I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of KALW Local Public Radio, San Francisco Bay Area, and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University. Copyright 2022. Our executive producer is Ben Trefney. Special thanks to Merle Kessler, Holly J. McDeed, Matt Martin, Lisette Vega, Lucy Nemeroff, Ellie Wong, Karen Edge Looney, and Linda Fagan. Thanks also to Roland Green, Patricia Tarasas, Bob Cable, Eric Ortiz, and everyone here at the Stanford Humanities Center, which has generously sponsored today's episode. And thanks to our musical guests, Dimitri Gaskin on accordion, Sheldon Brown on clarinet, and Stuart Brotman on upright bass. The senior producer of Philosophy Talk is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Dan Brandon is our technical director. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from Stanford University and the partners at our online community of thinkers. The views expressed or misexpressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a partner in our community of thinkers. I'm Ray Briggs. And I'm Josh Landy. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.